show. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Is this show killing people? Bad, 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 bad. Something good has to be coming. I'm so proud of us. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? I have so many questions right off the bat. For those of you who are like, my God, Michelle, you're too much. Chill out. It's McDonald's fault. When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm, this one's a challenge. Both of my eyes are twitching. Energy's gone. Can't do it now. I'm leaving. Well, sorry, everybody. You missed us. We had a great conversation without you. We planned a vacation. Um, We're tired now. (laughs) I think we've lost the thread here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we were, we were, Catherine had to read a map. And for anyone who knows Catherine knows that now my brain is dead. And hi, everyone. This is our podcast. This is episode 38, so I don't know that if we really need to introduce ourselves to you. I don't know. You never know. You never know when someone's going to drop in. I feel like we have to do it. We have to do our spiel. In that case, I'm Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Um, Every fortnight on Agreement, we bring you three things, and we bring them to each other because it's a surprise to one another, and those three things are... A weird thing. A pop culture thing. And a research thing. And then we just try to make them make sense together, make a little fortune cookie phrase or saying, or what did chat GPT teach us last time to call it instead? An aphorism. Aphorism. An aphorism. Thanks, chat GPT. I'm going around fortune cookie, fortune cookie, which I do like better, but I could have been saying aphorism this whole time. So it's episode 38. We're two away from 40. I'm very excited. And you go first. I'm ready. So my weird thing is um, I am teaching an informative writing class this semester, and I am talking to kids about how informative writing is like being a puzzle maker when you don't have the pieces yet. So your job is to go out and find the pieces and then to figure out how they go together. And so we were doing I this. I don't think that's how puzzles are made, Michelle. Okay. But they're if made were... in a factory and they're stamped. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's like I understand. making a puzzle without pieces. And you're like, okay, put together the puzzle. And you're like, well, of what? You have to go identify the pieces first. So uh, well, then I also used the metaphor of being like a museum curator. And somebody just handed you like Ooh, a yeah. box of like, I think today we talked about how like, what if you had to set up a um 1950s kitchen exhibit in a historical museum and somebody had donated a box of all their great aunt stuff and this this girl in a row she's like hey hey I'm like she's like we just moved into this house and we're donating boxes of my aunts my aunts <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to steal your life I'm sorry <laughs> it was 
for like um extra credit do it <laughs> but I was like you know if you started like grabbing randomly into the box like you're gonna end up with 10 broken blenders and not a good display right like you have to be you have to really dig through all the stuff and find the right ones to keep and put together so you know we're trying to just talk about like having the responsibility to not just grab the first sentence you see and drop it in your papers right um so we were doing a scavenger hunt for quotes in direct quotes in the wild because we're talking about direct quotes as one of these pieces and so um i was just randomly clicking on articles to try to show them one of these as an example and i opened up this story from npr about the high price of eggs because it's you know everybody's memeing about it right now and it's Fun fact, there's actually an onion shortage in the Philippines right now, and onions are more per pound than, like, beef or any kind of meat. Onions? And so if I had to choose between, like, eggs being... Onions! If I had to choose between eggs being too expensive or onions, I would take eggs every time. I mean, the potato famine was... Yeah. Just people starved to death because potatoes were... Did you know that a potato with butter will fulfill all of your nutritional needs like you can you can live off of potatoes with butter i think i have not like triple checked that i saw I like it in a that. Couple- welcome to Catherine and michelle's things we might have heard there's an onion famine in malaysia or the philippines and just eat potatoes and butter i mean now it makes sense like they have a lot of fiber butter has protein it makes i it tracks you oh but maybe you would get like scurvy I like how we just went silent <laughs> as we reflected on as we're like does a potato have vitamin c <laughs> hi Catherine here editing just want to let everyone know that a potato does have over half of your daily allotted amount of vitamin c 42 milligrams of vitamin c anyway, so <laughs> i okay. open up none of these are the weird thing yet none so. of these are the weird thing these are all bonus for you I open up an an article titled "Mung Bean Omelet." Anyone? Sky high egg prices. Crack open market for alternatives. And I'm like, oh, this will be fun. This will be fine for me to like read. And it was. And I found some direct quotes, and we talked about that. But the the thing that is my weird thing is that in this article, which in true NPR fashion is long and complicated, there is a man named Kern who runs an egg producing farm. And he has stopped putting his eggs on the market because he is now freeze drying all of them to sell them for $20 a dozen because people are so panicked about not having access to eggs that they are willing to buy these freeze dried eggs to stock up. And so the way that it's presented in the article, like instead of selling fresh eggs, Kern now freeze dries most of them. The freeze dryers are about the size of a mini fridge and a row of them hums away in a little building near Kern's chicken coop. The eggs Kern and his son just collected will be cleaned, cracked, whipped, and poured into cookie sheets that go into the freeze dryers. The freeze dryers reduce the eggs to a bright yellow powder. Looks kind of like gold dust, remarks Kern. I guess it is kind of gold dust, right? And so then he gets to charge $20 a dozen for his freeze-dried eggs, which he cannot keep on the shelf. People are buying them as fast as possible, which is just so fascinating to me because the whole rhetoric around this is eggs are so expensive. Eggs are way too expensive, right? So now people are paying more expensive, triple the price of even the expensive eggs just so that they can have the security of having them long-term. 
what in your life do you so desperately need eggs in that cannot be replaced by something else there's so many alternatives to eggs and i mean this is egg powder so like let's not pretend like this is getting you the same i mean you know egg powder is never gonna be as good as eggs so you're already kind of using a substitute anyway so i just i just find that weird i guess that That's one so weird that he was like oh there's an egg shortage well i'm gonna be part of it and take my eggs my fresh eggs but like yeah taking too. the eggs off the market so making less product charging more making people more afraid uh ever since like i mean it was happening before that but ever since covid hit and this just like the scarcity mentality, mentality scarcity mentality is wild I have been hearing a lot of interesting things about like egg alternatives, like they're making vegan eggs. Apparently you can replace most eggs that you bake with, with like applesauce or. Yeah. Or flaxseed. Yeah. Flaxseed or chia seed works really, really well. And if you want really good vegan scrambled eggs, chickpea flour, chickpea flour with water and you mix it up and fry it up. I sometimes can't tell the difference. What can't chickpeas do? Honestly, I know. Plus, butter the chickpeas are in a can. It's called alfalfa, and that you can whip up like a meringue. Oh I'm, yeah, I've heard. I've not tried it. But I have heard of that. So I think the answer here is chickpeas. They even or like chicken in the title. Freeze dry your eggs and charge is not the answer dollars for them there's no that's not the answer your weird thing is a horrific thing no <laughs> i agree i was like oh this is that's just and just that it was presented as like this like folksy guess it is kind of gold dust i'm like sir this is this is mean yeah. but also i just feel like if you're gonna go and do that like good fine shoot yourself in the foot cool 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 but it is less eggs for everybody else. Well, they can be kept for up to 20 years. So 20 <laughs> oh, years Christ. from now, someone's going to be cool. pulling out their freeze-dried packet of eggs and be like, who has the last lap now? Who's king of the eggs now, guys? No, I'll take my chickpeas. I'll take my cans of chickpeas. They're probably heavier and not as easy to carry, but... It does I'll mention take- that they weigh almost nothing as one of the reasons you should pay $20 a dozen for them. And I'm like, I don't... I've never been like, oh man, I would have bought more eggs, but they just weigh too much. Too much. They are delicate. I mean, I guess portability, but yeah, I'll do chickpeas. That's so weird. I don't like knowing that. That's something I wish I didn't know about the world almost. Uh, Okay. That's it. So I had trouble this week with weird things i went back and forth on a couple of things i probably should have talked about the onion shortage but um i liked i I went with the one i went with because i felt it played off of what you talked about last week and it is weird um so a few days ago last week u.s representative jake auchincloss decided to deliver a speech on the house floor on a bill that would create a U.S.-Israel artificial intelligence center. But he decided that he would let ChatGPT write his speech. Um, and so from what his 
staff can tell it is the first time an AI written speech was read in Congress. So it was a quick two paragraph speech. He's a Democrat from Massachusetts. And last Wednesday, he read it two Wednesdays ago. Now, if you're listening, he read it on uh, the floor of the house. And he said that he put in this prompt to chat GPT. You are Jake Auchinklaus, a member of Congress. Write 100 words to deliver on the floor of the House of Representatives. Topic, the importance of the United States-Israel Artificial Intelligence Center Act, which the congressman will reintroduce this term. So, yeah, he put that prompt in. He said part of his decision to read, why did he do this? Um, I feel like there's a lot of actual answers, right? Who, who in Congress doesn't love, like, a giant stupid poster board or some sort of give him the old razzle dazzle. So that's what I think this is. But he says he wants to spur debate about AI and the challenges and opportunities created by it. He doesn't want to see a repeat, he says, of the advent of social media, which started small and ballooned faster than Congress could react to it. So we should just balloon it fast before anyone well, can react that. to it for right. all of us. Is exactly. that, that's the... <laughs> so use it more, faster, run, run, run. I am the balloon. So he said also, I'm the youngest parent in the Democratic caucus. AI is going to be part of my life and it could be a general purpose technology for my children. Um, do you want to hear a speech? Do you want of to hear ChatGPT's speech? So again, he put in a fairly complicated yeah. prompt. And I like that he put in like, I am Jake, like you are Jake yeah. Action class, yeah. a representative. So here's the ChatGPT speech that he presented. <clears throat> Madam Speaker, I stand here today because I am planning to reintroduce the United States Israel Artificial Intelligence Center Act, a bipartisan piece of legislation it will cement a mutually beneficial partnership between the United States and Israel on artificial intelligence research. This is step forward in an era where artificial intelligence and its implications are taking center stage in public discourse. We must collaborate with international partners like the Israeli government to ensure that the United States maintains a leadership role in AI research and development and responsibly explores the many possibilities evolving technologies provide. The United States-Israel Artificial Intelligence Center Act will allow us to tap into the expertise of both countries and draw upon each other's resources to explore and develop cutting edge AI advancements. Is, is that all true? Like, is it bipartisan? I mean, I don't know. Because I did not research it. But I'm sure it's something he would say anyway, right? Like he would want to say it was bipartisan, whether it was true or not. Because I just, I wonder, so I was on the, um, I signed up for the wait list for the professional chat GPT before they announced like how much it was going to cost or anything. And I just got today, I got the email saying that I'm off the wait list and I can purchase it if I want. Um, and it's $20 a month. And, but as of right now, it looks like the only real perk is that like, if there's a downtime, then you get to go anyway. Like if like there's a queue and it is down a lot. So um, right now, and then like you get faster response time. So I guess they just does it let you have penis adventures I, uninterrupted? Maybe I should, maybe I should email a rep and ask like, um, 
I need to know the quality and the depth of your penis adventures before. For those of you who maybe are just joining us for the first time, <laughs> the callback. We're not just like. <laughs> See, sometimes it matters, Michelle. Sometimes there <laughs> are things just in case. Um, you're gonna like make a new friend. They'll just find this episode, and you're gonna be like, <laughs> "Penis adventures." I need them. <laughs> It was Sam. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, Go listen to the episode. Listen before. to the last episode before this one. Um, but so, yeah, I'm trying to decide because, like, I do find myself using it. I hardly ever take, I don't think I've ever taken exactly what it wrote unless I was doing kind of what this guy was doing, which was to use it to make a point about right. how ChatGPT works. But yeah. otherwise, but like, it does help me brainstorm and it does help me, like, clarify my own ideas and I'll just brain dump into it and be like summarize this and then it spits back out at me and I'm like oh that's what I'm trying to figure out and like I just I find it to be a really useful tool and I also feel some responsibility as an educator to figure out how to use it well because I just I think that like this congressman said like I do think that it will be a typical tool in most current children's adult lives like and especially when your primary focus of teaching is writing like you especially yeah so i i'm considering subscribing to it just i mean to have access to it to play around with like okay what kind of prompts do i put in and how do i like i just i feel a responsibility to understand the tool well because i think that it is going to be important and like I don't know that I like it and I don't know that I think that, it, but it's here. Right. And I, I mean, you could make an argument that like the calculator made teaching math worse, I guess, but I don't know. But you, but as a math teacher, you have to know how calculators you work, how to use the calculator. Right. So like, okay. I, whether you so like it or not, I've been trying to tease out my complicated feelings about it for a while. And I think I'm leaning towards continuing to explore it and use it because think it's here and it's gonna stick around and get better yeah I don't think it's something we have to say is good or bad I just we have to we have to like you said we have to understand it and be responsible with it and I really really want access to be able to give it my own data to pull from like I really want to be able to drop in like this is the database I want you to pull from when you give these responses like I think, oh yeah, that would be excellent to be like, here, just use Google Scholar, just use this, just use like these journals. That would be nice. And then to know where it's getting it from. Um, did we talk about this in, in last week? No, I was talking about this with a different group of friends and chat GPT has taken over my life. Like every, all of my different little groups That's are talking about it. Everyone's um, talking about, yeah. About how people are going to feed it their own, like, set of you know that um black mirror episode where they create like the the chat bot from the person from the dead person by uploading all of their um text messages and emails and so it can get their voice or whatever so there are many scholars who are saying that this technology people will feed all of their own data into it and create a virtual avatar that can then like answer emails as them because it will know exactly how that how you would respond essentially because it would have all of the data of how you have responded in the past. So it'd be like the predicted text based entirely off of your own set of information. And so um, that would be amazing. Like as long as it's like, gives you approval, like, do you want to send this? 
we were talking last week about emails though and about how like it's you're wasting your whole life doing emails especially when you answer the same questions over and over and over again in just slightly different ways like I don't know. I would be okay with a chat bot putting together my general responses based off of my past responses. Like that doesn't feel. I also feel like that would work really well. Now I feel like maybe five, 10 years ago, it wouldn't because five or 10 years ago, I was emailing all my friends too. And so the way I would respond to different people via email is very different, but now I text my friends and loved ones. Email is only business. Yeah. Um, But Severance, have you watched Severance? Everybody has told me that I have to watch Severance and that I will love it. Oh, but you have to watch Severance. I really want to know. I want to talk about it with you. And I'm going to watch The Last of Us. So far, it's really good. There's something very specific I want to talk to you about, but I cannot say anything because I don't want to predispose you to any notions about it. I just want you to experience it and then we'll talk. So with that vague hinting at each other about pop culture, I think it's time for pop culture things. (laughs) Let's do pop culture things. So I don't know if mine really counts as pop culture because it's, well, so I am teaching a Kurt Vonnegut class because I want to. I was amazing. Yes. I I wanted to teach a class on Kurt Vonnegut for years and years and years. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I don't know if that many, and only four kids are taking it, um, which I kind of love because it's four kids who are, I've had before who are really dedicated and I know we're going to have a great class. I'm so excited to talk about it. Um, But I had to What's their age range? uh, They're they're all older teens. So I would say like 14 to 17 which is the perfect age to read Kurt Vonnegut because you're right in that like absurdity of getting near adulthood and you're kind of, especially if you're in any kind of world where there's turmoil on a larger level and you're just like, what is it all about? It's just, it just scratches an itch. Um, So I'm really excited to talk to them about it. I, um, but I, I'm just going to ask you, cause you are, you are. I just Ron- also, I'm going to totally, I'm going to totally interrupt. And I just want to take this time to let anyone listening know that I got to meet Kurt Vonnegut and I shook his hand. I, know, I was so jealous. I remember looking at the pictures when we were kids and just being so jealous. I skipped school. It was great. Sorry. I also sorry think to, that. Sorry to bring that hurt up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, um, Kurt Vonnegut's death was one of like the first times that I just like legitimately sobbed about the loss of someone I had never met you know like yeah my brother called me and we like cried on the phone together so I'm gonna ask you if you had 13 weeks to teach a set of teenagers Kurt Vonnegut what text would you choose all of them we can't <laughs> choose all of them 13 weeks you said 13 weeks so that's like a little over a little over three months um well, you have to do Welcome to the Monkey House, right? The whole book? Yeah. Well, I guess. I mean, Harrison Bergeron, right? That's the one from that one. Um, I'm torn because I know which ones are important and then there are my favorites. That's like exactly Galapagos. the conversation I have the with Lapagos myself. is my favorite. Um. 
I really love Galapagos, but that's probably not one you would assign. That's not a big one. The one with Ice Nine, Cat's Cradle, I feel like that one, it does the same stuff as Galapagos. I like Galapagos better, but that's the bigger one. Okay, definitely Cat's Cradle. I know everyone loves Slaughterhouse-Five, and that was the first one I ever read by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I guess that one, too, Slaughterhouse-Five. Cat's Cradle. If you're, teaching, if you're teaching like a class on Kurt Vonnegut, it feels like by the end of it, you should have read Slaughterhouse Five, right? Yeah, because that's yeah. Um, oh, this is impossible. This is like Sophie's Choice. Oh my gosh, because I love them all. I love them all. I'm like, I love Bluebeard. I'm still not unconvinced that like I didn't become an art historian because of the book Bluebeard. Um, Oh man. Oh my gosh. Slap happy is like my other favorite, but you cannot assign that to 14 year olds. So, I mean, I know breakfast of champions is important too, but there are other books that do what he does that aren't like problematic. That one's a little problematic these days. I would definitely assign cat's cradle slaughterhouse five, all of welcome to the monkey house. And then this is what I would do. This is what I would do to get around things. I would, um, have, a, a section where everyone gets to choose a Kurt Vonnegut book they want to read and then they do a report and share it with everyone else so, so that's you how get you the get most everything. Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> yeah that's what I would do that's that's a good share so I I agonized over this because I was like we'll just read everything but then I already have a framework in place for these high school lit classes where it ends up being that's my major standard right <laughs> Three major papers based on three separate readings that are broken into two days each. So we have like day one, day two, and then two class periods of discussion and work as they work on a paper from that set of text. And then another text and same. So that cycle repeats three times by the time we get to the end. So what I ended up going with is selections from Welcome to the Monkey House. And then even that was hard because then it's like, well, which ones do you read? We are going to read. On the first day, we're going to read Harrison Bergeron and the report on the Barnhouse effect. Do you remember that Ooh, one? No, what's that one about? That's the one where the um, guy figures out how to use his brain to destroy anything, basically. And they turn yeah. it into a military weapon. And the, yeah. Um, and then we're Good going choice. to read uh, Epicac, which is the kind of the precursor to player piano. Because... Yes. I did not pick player piano, even though I wanted to. So I thought, well, we could do this and that'll cover, like we'll be able to talk about the same themes. And I picked those three because they're all kind of about like the sci-fi and the question of like power and the like, you know, technology and futuristic sort of stuff. And then the second set we're going to read is um, the the more just sort of like the people being weird, I guess. Like it's who am I this time? The one where the guy is uh can't remember like what he is acting and he like can't remember which person oh, he's supposed yeah. to be. And then um more stately mansions, which is my favorite Kurt Vonnegut story. I don't know why I just adore it so much. It's the one where the woman has the book full of all of the stuff that she um she's been planning her house. Yeah. And how did and, I forget that? Oh, I yeah. love it. I don't know why I love it so much. Maybe I'll figure it out while I'm teaching it. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know, I'm going to spoil more stately mansions for you. You should still go read it. So in this short story, there is a woman who has been collecting 
um, in great detail in this scrapbook, her ideal house. So she's planned out like what the curtains should look like and what the carpet should look like. And anytime anybody comes over, she makes them look at this book with her and goes over and over and over about, and this is going here and this is here and look at this house and look at my chandelier. Um, but she really lives in kind of a shabby rundown house and she gets sick and she's in the hospital for a long time. And her friends all get together and decide to make her home look the way that it looks in the thing. And they, she had such meticulous detail about how she wanted all of it, but they couldn't find the exact shade of curtain. So they had to get a slightly lighter one. And when she came home, everyone was so excited to see how she would respond to it. And she comes in and she sits down and she's like, huh, it's just it's so weird after all these years those curtains had never faded and now they have. And just the sense that, you know, she'd always lived in that house that was that beautifully decorated. And I don't, I'm just- Do you think there's something about how much that meta Super Bowl ad bothered you and that story? I'm is that Is that Kurt Vonnegut pre-seeing meta VR headsets to be like, the world is on fire, it's terrible, so live in here. And she, her book was her VR headset. Yes, yes, I'm yes, I'm certain that the reason that is my favorite story and the way that I responded to that ad are just, it's just very, itching. Very yeah, the same, but he did it in a way that you liked, and the meta is horrific, and it's an ad for a world. Yes. yes, so we're doing that, and then the foster portfolio, which is another like human like exploration, and then we are doing Mother Night because I really love Mother Night. Um, and I think that it goes with the group of like people in your mind and how you see yourself and your identity. And then we're doing Slaughterhouse Five because I think it will, I mean, you know, I think if you're doing like a study of Kurt Vonnegut, they should have finished Slaughterhouse Five by the time they finish it. So yeah. um that is what I landed on. But I don't know how like I feel like I could have just drawn them out of the hat out of a hat and still had a great class. So Cat's Cradle or Galapagos that starts off by being like here are the characters here's who's gonna die i think it's galapagos that gives you the little asterisks and like every I, time yes, you asterisk they're gonna give you the asterisks about who's gonna die and there are just moments in my like reading life that really stick out to me and um how rl stein is so hooky is one but that one to be like you can tell us the ending and we'll still read because I was very young when I read yeah. it. I'm like, you can do that? Yeah, I remember and that. I remember. And I, I brought up the asterisks when I was telling them about postmodernism um, and, you know, like, what does that mean and defining it? And I was like, you know, the the narrative form is not always linear and you there's a lot of breaking the fourth wall. And so I was giving that as an example. So I'm, you don't need to read all of it for that. Yeah, that's a good example for just. Oh my gosh, was that your? That was so fun. But, I wanted yeah, to talk about Kurvonegat. I, I love it. I love just it. Trying so to figure much. out what you would teach in a, in a Kurvonegat class. That was my. Pop it's almost thing. impossible. Like you said, you could draw almost anything. Yeah, I am. Oh, I think it's going to be excellent. I'm just. I'm so excited about it. Oh, you have to. You keep keep me updated do updates because I'm very excited to hear how that goes. You and I love Kerfonget. If you go to our small town library that still has cards in the back, you sign out. Every Kurt Vonnegut book is just Michelle's name and my name. Michelle's name and <laughs> my name. We got all of them. And I, um, I actually broke my own rule by doing this because I try not to teach books that I love because it's you know, interesting it's risky to teach books that you love because then if the, yeah. if the students don't love them like it, i you know it don't want to be too 
argumentative about it, but I just flat out told them, I was like, look, I broke my own rule. I typically don't teach things that I love, uh, but I love this. And if you don't love it, it's fine, but I'm going to argue with you. I love, I mean, yeah, great. That's if you're going to do it, that's how you have to do it. Absolutely. Oh, I'm jealous of you. I'm so jealous you get to teach a Carbonica class. You got See, it's I'm gone full circle because I was jealous of you getting yes! to meet him. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I got to meet him, but you get to teach it. It was really fun. It was awesome. Thank you to my uncle Eddie. Anyway, okay. So my pop culture. Oh my God. I'm gonna really drag this all down. I kind of want to be like, pass, pass this week. I'm very ashamed now. Oh, I feel itchy. I don't want to do this. Okay. Um, just going to give a second for the mood to shift. Give a moment of silence to pass. I can't believe I'm going to follow Kurt Vaughn to get up with this. Oh, gosh. Okay. This is about TV. I love you. We all know it. I love TV. Um, I love bad TV. But there is a theme happening in reality TV right now that is making my brain absolutely break and so did you when it was out did you watch 30 rock i've seen a few isolated episodes but not in any so you kind of get the vibe you get the vibe of it you know it's a comedy um and 30 rock was a very popular show and i don't know how it holds up i haven't watched it recently i really liked it when it was airing um it was really good at like zany absurdist satire it was about a a television network that had other shows and kind of the apex of them satirizing television being stupid was a reality show the network had called milf island and so do you know where this is going (laughs) every now and then Every now and then people would be watching it. You'd have clips like season after season. They'd be like, next on Milf Island. Um, And basically they described it on the show as a 25 super hot moms, 50 eighth grade boys, no rules. And I just said in our, you know, in our last section, things like, I I may have edited this out. I may have not. I don't know. Um, Things like Veep stopped making beat because you can't parody politics you can't parody xyz and it's like you can't parody television either now because i watched a reality show not one michelle but two reality shows the first of which is called back in the groove yeah you haven't heard of this one did you know there were two so back in the groove is on i want to say hulu it's on hulu called back in the groove it's a play on still how stella got her groove back hey Diggs is ostensibly the host he shows up once and never comes back again how um, many times has that happened where they get these so like the first day they're like mm, no, yeah my career is not yeah. going down like this <laughs> no nope bye so this show is pretty tame um the women are very nice they seem very well adjusted they're healthy they have reasons for being there they're also all in their like 40s early to mid 40s which made that broke my brain too to be like we're old can we even have love and they're not much older than you or I that much older um but anyway and the other thing was so the premise of the show back in the groove it's made by the producers of one of my favorite reality shows f boy island and it's filmed in the same house and location which is fun to see that come back 
So the premise is that three women come to this place that they call the Groove Hotel, and they have just a plethora, a bounty of young men that they get to date and get their groove back with. And at the end of it, maybe they'll find everlasting love. So the first thing is that this is essentially like they build it up. Like, I love younger men. And all these men are like, I love older women. The women are like in their 40s. And there are men that are 35. Like there are men that are not a, even a decade younger than these women. Like you all were in high school at the same time. This is not <laughs> very upsetting. Like if the genders were reversed, no one would bat an eye at all. And yet there is a whole reality show about this. So the setup is, you know, it's a reality show. But the thing is, at the end of episode one, it ends by revealing that one of the men in the dating pool is one of those three women's sons. Yeah, that's the face. Michelle's face just got pulled like, gross, bad, wrong. And they reveal it to you, the audience member. And then they go about an episode where you're like, which mom is it? Which son is it? And then they let you know. And then it's like three more episodes before they announce it to everyone. And everyone loses their mind. The woman that is like romantically involved with the son immediately all of the romance is killed because she's friends with this woman. She's like, I'm like his aunt. He's like not a romantic figure anymore. Good for them. But it's just so weird. And I read up on it a little and the producers claim that it was the mother's idea. They're like, when we met this woman, we wanted her to be on the show. She walked into the room. She was so fun. She had so much energy. And um, she was telling us about her life. And she said how close she was with her son. And then she said verbatim, wouldn't it be cool if my son could just come and like be there with me? Like hang out with me? And the producers were like, yeah. She knew the full premise. Like, yes. Oh, yes. And the producers were like, done. Gold. Excellent. Picking so, up what you're um, down, ma'am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I will say, ultimately, that show, that's the weirdest part of the show. There's no more romantic chemistry with her son after that. There's some pretty okay guys on it, which is that ostensibly it's the group hotel and there's a concierge named Pedro. And for whatever reason, the producers were bored. I don't know. They heavily imply that Pedro, the concierge of the hotel, is a werewolf. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Like um, before he comes onto the scene, there's howling and a full moon. He hides in the bushes. Like they're doing a bit. They're like, wouldn't it be funny if we did a bit where he's a werewolf? And then they took it way too far and never explained it. But it's also and not that- like part of the plot in any way. No. It's just- <laughs> It's a reality TV show, but they're editing editing it to be like, let's do this bit, which is very weird as someone who kind of grew up with reality TV. The other thing that broke my brain about this reality show, beyond that it is like this parody come to life that you can watch, is that it had a dream sequence in it. And just, this is probably very boring, but I can't stop thinking about it. Just imagine it's a real, it's a standard reality dating show. And one of the young men says, Hey, I had a dream about you to one of the women. And she's like, well, what was the dream? And so through voiceover, he starts saying the dream, but the imagery we get is like a heavily filtered 
video sequence of them doing his dream. That woman and him, it's like, he's like, oh, I was putting suntan lotion on you. I got too much suntan lotion on you. But it's a dream sequence. But then production was like, you guys have to go film this so we can put it in the reality show as a dream sequence. So then it does come true. His his dream comes true, but they the do show it. treats it as a dream that never happens. Broke my brain to Which, have like, a dream sequence in a reality makes show. Makes you wonder what they would have done if it hadn't been a realistic dream sequence. Like, what if it had been like, and then we flew around and you grew the wings of <laughs> You know, with the whole Pedro werewolf thing, I would not I have would, put it past them. Just would have gone with it. At the end of the day, I, I don't not recommend watching some of that show but there's more it gets so much worse and you kind of showed some recognition groove back in the groove has gotten no attention and it is by far the superior show but there is also a show called milf manor on the learning channel of course um did they make did they make a nod to the fact that they just clearly took that straight from 30 rock because i didn't know that like is that part of of the premise I did research into this and both sets of producers for back in the group, it's the producers of Buckboy Island. And they were like, we have this filming location. It's really cheap. It's in the Dominican Republic. We wanted to do something else. We didn't know about 30 Rock. And then MILF Manor, which is even closer because they're like using the word MILF. Um, well, I mean, back in the groove, ostensibly, they're saying we got this from Stella, how Stella got her groove back. And they're even using Tay Diggs, who was in that movie. Right. But Milf Manor, which definitely, in the way it is produced and more trashy, is more clearly a ripoff of Milf Island. They said, um, the producer said, no, we had no idea. And they're like, actually, it's more about White Lotus. We got inspired by White Lotus was the inspiration for this. That's their story that they're sticking to. Um, But again, I just want to reiterate that like, the most obscene, weirdest, parodic show that a show that was very good at parodies could come up with is now not one, but two television properties happening in our world right now. What do you know about Milk Manor? Only that it exists. Like I just okay. heard, like just literally Milk Manor. I was like, oh no. Get ready to pull a million faces. Um, Milk Manor is basically same premise older women this time actually older women they're in their late 50s some of them are in their 60s i'm not saying that's old but it's older than 41 and the men are like in their 20s so the age difference is much larger now why do you think that is because not only is age age range different but these women come to the island they're looking for love they like to date younger men the men like to date older women and there are also the exact same number of men as there are women and it's because they reveal spoiler they are the women's sons exclusively these women's sons not just one woman has one son the whole dating pool for these women are the other women's sons ew yeah yeah why i this is my biggest question michelle why and like that wasn't one the thing. 30 Rock. Like 30 Rock couldn't even have dug no. that deep to come up no. with that. It's like, like, what? 30 Rock, which was a parody, did not edge up against incest at all. 
And you're and and you might think incest, Catherine. That's a little harsh. Let me tell you about some of the challenges that go on at Milf Manor because it's like there are challenge. It's like The Bachelor where there are challenges and then you get to go on a date. Um, the challenges such as all the young men put on a blindfold, all the women lay down topless on a massage table, and you have to massage the women. Can you guess who your mom is? Yeah. What? Um. Also line up all the young men without shirts put put blindfolds on the moms you win if you can pick out your son's naked torso by feel out of a lineup of naked torsos i'm not a very um freudian analysis like i'm not very big into the freudian analysis but uh yikes what it are is, we doing it's so wild it's so I just, I just, it's one thing to like have these shows, to have this show become a real show, but why throw in the like, and your son is here and like, you're butting up against dating your son. Why? I don't understand it. I don't understand this Freudian. What is happening in the zeitgeist right now that we have two of these shows? Mm-mm. <sighs> Mm-mm. No, you said you didn't want to know about the freeze-dried eggs. I didn't want to know about this. What have we done? I know. <laughs> um, it's it's oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's 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 oh, and I and the other thing is that they make the mother and sons share a room. So the mom is sharing a room with her son. So whenever like any of the moms or sons want to like get frisky, it's like a battle of like get out of my room, mom, or the other mom is in bed with the son with the mom has it's it just keeps getting worse and worse. Oh, so weird. Yup. And are people other than you? Because you'll watch anything. I don't feel like <laughs> you're, you're not, not the not fair. Offended. Like, are people other than you watching this? I mean, I've heard a lot about it. And you heard about it. I did hear so about it. I don't know if people are. It's and, and for all of this craziness, it is a deeply boring show. None of the people on it are interesting. I hate it. I've watched two episodes I'm not going to watch anymore. I watched all of Back in the Groove. Um, but here's another thing I noticed. I'm going to try to get this taste out of our collective mouths. Um, the taste of our son's saliva, I guess. Basically, um, yeah. <laughs> sorry, Michelle. <laughs> See, I don't have children and you do have this so much worse. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to end with one more observation. This wasn't enough to be its own pop culture thing. But back in the groove does this thing, like you said, where they have a celebrity host that like comes and says hi and then pieces out and is not there anymore. Pedro the werewolf is then the host. But I noticed on MILF Manor, not MILF Island, MILF Manor, that everyone has a cell phone. They all get these big like child safe cell phones that has nothing but text. And they get texts. There is no host. It is them and production and they'll get texts and they have to read it. And they'll be like, okay, now here's the challenge. And so there is no host. It's just all texted to them, which is a, it's a trend I'm seeing in TV where they just oust the host. And and at first it was like the circle, right? Cause that's like a robot yeah. that's part yeah. of it. There's too hot to handle where it's a machine. 
But there was another show I just saw, which is actually, I recommend this show on Netflix. I really liked it called Pressure Cooker. And it's a cooking show on Netflix, which did the exact same thing. It has like a group of 12 chefs. They live in a house. They cook against each other. And the instructions and the challenges are printed out of like a food order printer. Do you think ChatGPT is writing the challenges? That's why they can't. Probably. It's running everything. And not only that, but the judges for that cooking show were previously eliminated contestants. And sometimes it was just contestants that were still in the game. So they're not even paying for judges. They're not paying for hosts. It's a whole new world. It just run itself. It makes it so claustrophobic. Well, they don't see anybody except themselves. At least for Milf Manor, who, who, with any celebrity status, would you hand that script to? And they'd be like, yeah, okay. No, no, I'm not touching that. Let's brainstorm celebrities that would be perfect for Milf Manor. (laughs) That'd be really their brand. Yeah, that's it. That reality shows will no longer have hosts and they will be very Freudian. All right. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I had to be the one to tell you about incest shows. Okay. Let's let's quickly, quickly move on to research. I thought that my research thing was going to be the most disturbing part of this, but it is not. All right. (laughs) I win. I have thought long and hard about how to deliver these bits and pieces to get to get us into the full thing. So I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to start by reading you a joke. A man takes his sick mother to the emergency room after waiting around for hours and hours in a state of fretfulness and without knowing what's going on. The doctor finally comes out and asks, well, do you want the good news first or the bad news? Grimly, the man replies, the bad news. Well, says the doctor, the bad news is that your mother has had a terrible stroke. It's completely incapacitated her. She's basically a vegetable. She'll never be able to feed herself, walk, or talk again. Oh my God, says the man. That's terrible. Yes, but unfortunately, there's more, says the doctor. In addition to being unable to feed herself or walk or talk, she can't wash or take care of her other bodily needs. You will need to do all of these things for her, day and night, and she won't even know it's you. Oh my God, says the man. That's terrible. Yes, said the doctor. You'll be responsible for her every need. The worst news is you'll end up completely physically and emotionally exhausted because you won't be eating or sleeping yourself. You'll also probably end up bankrupt because of the financial burden. In fact, because of the stress, you'll probably die before she does. Oh my God, says the man. What's the good news? <laughs> Just kidding. She's dead. <laughs> oh no, oh no. Why did I laugh at that? That is my research thing. Why did you laugh at that? So I read I really, I really did. That is the opening to a article by Lisa Gaber in um Laughter, Humor, and the Medical. <laughs> um actually it, it was published in the Journal of American Folklore. I think that was the sub, the subcategory for this one. And the title, the title is Suffering in Medical Context, Laughter, Humor, and the Medical Carnivalesque. And um, let me tell you a little bit about how I found this article. So I was trying to come up with a research thing and I was reading some book and a character had a cast on their arm and somebody signed it. And I was like, that's like, why do we sign cast? It's kind of weird to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to look up why we sign cast and I just kept getting like a bunch of like 
Quora prompts or Reddit threads. And I was like, surely there's some real research on this. And um, I found some, but I couldn't get to it because it was like in an archive in a folklore museum that you could only like go and physically check out to read. And so I was like, well, obviously I'm not going to do that because I procrastinated. Wow. Yeah. I can't like go drive to this folklore museum and check out the article on why we write on cast. But someday it looks really interesting. But because of no, that, I was where, on this- where is that located? That museum? I'll, I'll have to double check again. Maybe we can make that a, a journey. Yeah, absolutely. So. <laughs> um, so I'm on this folklore website and I find their like lists of like resources and things. And then I found the Journal of American Folklore and I had access to it from JSTOR through my library. So I was like, hmm, I bet I can find a research worthy thing somewhere in here. So I just started randomly reading some folklore articles and this one fascinated me because it opened up with that joke I just told you. And so um, this woman who wrote this is the wife of a doctor who was has been with him since he started medical school. And she just wanted to figure out why he and all of his medical doctor friends told such terribly dark jokes. And so she is exploring in um in this article and in her other research as well, uh, the this experience of medical students becoming really dark in their humor. And she has created this theory that um connects suffering and laughter. And she says here, suffering is an inner subjectively constituted work-related experience. I suggest that this culture of suffering is a primary context for medical humor and the medical carnivalesque. And so she uses um, like Bakhtin's idea of the carnivalesque and calls upon it. Um, and ultimately she connects this kind of, th there's been lots of discussions about humor and medicine, right? Like humor can be used as a way to relieve stress. It's a defense mechanism because doctors have to work in such a stressful environment. Uh, we have articles on whether it's ethical to make jokes about death and suffering. Um, that if it can create a negative impact for patients for training, if it can outweigh if the benefits or the risks of humor in these situations, which one comes out on top. But she's more interested in like, why does this happen to begin with? And so she's talking a lot about this book called The House of God, which is this book that was published on like medical school stuff. It was banned in a lot of medical schools because they were like, this is too dark. We don't want our students reading this. But a lot of medical students were like, oh, my gosh, this saved me. Like, I needed this oh. kind of absurd, dark, hilarious take because they said that it was just so pre prevalent in the medical situation that these patients and the doctors are both suffering. And there's just so much suffering around them all the time. And in particular, I'm really interested. I've been studying a lot about um, like the Sisyphus myth right now, and I'm reading Kip Camus. And um, so we've got this discussion of how doctors are in this Sisyphean cycle of like, even if they save a patient, there's just another patient. And even if they save that patient, there's just another, there's, they're always in a perpetual state of trying to rescue someone and rescuing someone doesn't mean like, you know, you, they're never going to finish. So they're just doing this right. perpetual task of trying to fight death, which ultimately death is going to win, right? Like you can't, you can't fight death forever. Like their patients are going to die. They are going to right. die. Like it, it, and so basically their job is to prevent the unpreventable. Right. Right. Yeah. 
And so um, there, she is arguing that it is not in any way unethical to laugh in this way and that it is not schadenfreude. They're not laughing at the patient's suffering. They are like, I mean, the famous right. quote is, right? You must imagine Sisyphus smiling, right? And so that it is about them identifying the absurdity within their situation and finding a way to have joy in it despite how endlessly the suffering happens for them um and i just want to pull out a couple of specific a apparently the primary meaning of the verb to suffer is to undergo or to endure and so it is a type of experience right so mm -hmm. you have to consider like being embedded in that particular experience and that suffering is not just pain that we often consider pain and suffering to be to be synonymous but she says that's not the case that people can be in deep pain and not be suffering and that suffering has these additional components and they are components of hopelessness isolation shame dread of the future and an impending sense of the total destruction of self and so um i am really interested in that personally, because I get very frustrated with the medical community's discussion of pain, particularly like I've been frustrated as a, as a patient myself, because I'm often like, I, I don't know, like I'm okay with pain, but there are other things that I want to avoid more than pain. And I don't think I'm always right. taking it seriously in those situations. So like when I was, I broke my ankle and I was just, they were just kept trying to give me pain pills. And I was like, I do not want these pain pills. And then they wouldn't give me any more physical therapy appointments. They said that I had maxed out on that. Um, I mean, that was my insurance, not the doctor's fault. But still, the doctor's still, still, yeah. still trying to give me pain pills like five months later or something. I, I only took like one day of them. Um, but, would, but I couldn't get any more physical therapy appointments. And then like, you know, I had an unmedicated childbirth and people, just the way people talked about it was so bizarre because I was not up on any like moral or I just want to be able to feel my legs at all times it's like a no you just yeah you hate that feel you hate the feeling that like painkillers give you you were like freaked out about not being able to move yeah and I just very clearly was like I would prefer to feel my legs over not feeling pain and I just couldn't get people to believe me I guess because there was just this thing of like we must remove all pain all pain and I was like I'm really okay with dealing with pain right now. Like I don't want to deal with not being able to move my legs. And I just could not, like, I felt like I couldn't communicate my ideas to anybody because it was just such we've, a foreign concept. We've talked a lot about like, what does it mean to be happy versus like content versus not unhappy. And I think this is the same where, especially in the U S and it's like, right, we have an opioid crisis and all of that. The idea that you can just, there should never be any pain at any level. And that's the thing to always correct is so problematic. Like some like pain, we feel pain for a reason. Sometimes it needs to be there. There's like a certain level, I think that you should learn to live with not forever. Right. But if you have a massive injury and yeah. Well, and I was reading that, um, the 4,000 weeks book that I was telling you about last time by Oliver Berkman. And there's a section in there about a man who, um, was like an American who wanted to go live with Tibetan monks. And he showed up at their door and they were like, go away, little American boy, you don't. And he's like, you know, like the, the classic 
have to keep standing by the door every morning. So they'll finally let you in. And so he, they finally did let him in and let him do like menial tasks. But one of the things he had to do was every day he had to go and melt a bucket of snow and then like pour it over himself. And he was talking about the pain of how cold it was. Cause like it would freeze back on his body as it was happening. And his feet would like freeze to the ground. And um, at some point he like, cause the whole section is about how if you are in pain, the immediate impulse is to think you're supposed to try to escape the pain, right? right? You're supposed to divert yourself from the pain. You're supposed to ignore the pain. You're supposed to push it away. You're supposed to physically get away from it. And he wrote about how once he leaned into the pain and like identified it as pain and thought about the pain, that it wasn't painful anymore. That Have it was, you ever there was... done that? Like I do that all the time where it's like, if you just focus on it, you're like, what does it actually feel like? If I couldn't say it feels like pain. What is this feeling? It is so good at pain relief. Not to say like, don't ever, not to be new agey and say never take drugs, blah, blah, blah. But I've had like bad teeth my whole life. So I've had a lot of tooth pain that sometimes I just can't get help with. And like, yeah, there is so much to it to be like, examine it, really look at it. Well, and I, it's funny that you mentioned that. Like, if I can just, if it wasn't pain, what would I call it? Because when I was in labor, uh, one of the things that helped so much, because like, yeah, labor sucks in terms of, you know, it, it does not feel great. Um, I've heard. That's what I've heard. <laughs> that seems I did it again, shit. though, without medication. So, like, it wasn't so bad that I wouldn't do it again, because I did. Um, but one of the things that helped the most was literally just saying, this pain feels like, you know, somebody is twisting my insides with two screwdrivers together, you know, or whatever it was. Like, and just literally naming it and saying it was extremely helpful because I do think that a lot of what pain is, is us trying to avoid naming or experiencing the pain. And again, like, I don't want to be dismissive of people who have chronic pain issues. Absolutely not. Yeah. Being ignored by doctors who aren't listening to them say that they're having pain and not getting it treated properly. Um, This is just a very personal take for me. Like, I don't want to be approached as if no pain is the ultimate goal when we're not discussing the consequences of reaching that goal. Like why the reasons for the pain and what can you do about that? Absolutely. And like giving birth is, oh, you have to watch severance. I'm sorry. That ties into this. (laughs) But like giving birth is a finite thing. It'll be done. Right. And then. Because I called, um, you know, when I was pregnant the first time, like, I don't know. I was like, am I in labor? I was in labor forever. I was in labor for like two weeks. I swear to God. Um, so I called and I was like, they told me to come in when my contractions were this far apart and they're that far apart. But like, they also told me that come in when it's this level of intensity and like, I feel fine. And they were like, oh, well just come in when you can no longer bear it. And I'm like, well, I intend to bear it always. So what does that mean? You mean (laughs) come, come in right when I'm gonna walk into trap like what like what does that mean and it just you know like I don't think they were trying to be unhelpful I just don't think that we have the language to properly discuss it because we don't yeah it's just yeah but also to talk about those jokes and stuff that's very um just like gallows humor right that's an accepted thing that we say um she dug deep and she went and did like, I guess, like an ethnographic study where she interviewed a bunch of medical students. And what she found out was that a lot of them had so much trauma 
from watching people die. They were especially impacted by people who did not expect something terrible to happen. So like there were people who, you know, a couple had a perfectly healthy baby that was looking great. And two days later, the baby just unexpectedly died while still in the hospital. And the, this, this young doctor was just carrying around all of the grief from that experience. There was a lot of them that worked on pediatric wards and had watched children die. And like, they were just talking about how horrendous it was to try to like understand and make sense of that. And so then she starts comparing it to um, religion and how religion tries to make sense of suffering. Right. And she's like, but the medical community is often a deeply secular community. So they don't have within the occupational community, not to say that the medical people cannot be religious or find their own meaning through of suffering through their own religious practices, but within the occupational space, right. it's generally not acceptable to use those stories of suffering. Sure. And most of these jokes that they're telling are never in front of the patients. They are with each other, right? So it is in this yeah. strictly like occupational space. Um, and, and her theory is that they're doing it in the exact same way that you would do that religious thing, which is to transform it into a different meaning, right? To, mm. to take it outside of, like, let me find her quote about it because it's really good. That's um, fascinating. It makes so much sense. So she says, shifting the actual experience of work-related suffering by changing its meaning. Jokes are a brief time off from the everyday inhibitions and restrictions that bind the ways we speak. And we are inverting given hierarchies and values by playing with the ambiguity of language to take this suffering experience and turn it into a different response. Um, and I just, I think that's just really nice. I also just wanted to share with you. Yeah. Um, um, she collected a bunch of terms. Which was also fascinating from us for night because ChatGPT can't do jokes. And yet they're so integral to all of human experience like this. There's been so many overlaps. I think we need to make last week and this week like a part one and part two so people don't miss all the nuance. Yeah. Um, she she has a bunch of slang word examples for death, which a lot of them I think are just pretty common slang for death, like to be cooled or tagged, dirt nap, planted, croaked, kicked the bucket, checked out, crashed, ate it, went belly up, bit the big one, bit the long weenie. But there were a couple I had not heard, which was to die a Harvard death. What does any, that mean? Any guesses? To an euphemism for death. It's a specific kind of death. To die a Harvard death. It's when the patient's labs were completely normal, so you weren't expecting them to die. So they were a perfect patient, like a Harvard student. Oh. They died anyway. Um, they'll say CTD, which means circling the drain. Or uh, a patient might be diagnosed as having TMB. Too many birthdays. <laughs> um they might this this is a british term a tf bundy totally fucked but unfortunately not dead yet i mean that's the joke you told at first right yeah like- yeah gpo good for parts only um and so yeah i just i i just found this really fascinating because i personally turn to humor a lot in dark times to the point that I sometimes have realized that I'm disturbing people because it's usually kind of self-deprecating or at least about my own misfortunes. And I think people are like, are you okay? Like, do we need to call someone? <laughs> and I'm like, no, really, like it's, it's, I'm, 
you know, it's just what I do. Um, but I think that like, this just made me really reflect on what is the role of doing that. Right. Like, cause I don't think it's deflection. Like, I think that that's no. what people yeah. are. They're like, Oh, you're deflecting. You're not really seriously thinking about it. I'm like, Oh no, no, I really seriously thought about it and I'm tired of being miserable over it. So now I'm going to make some jokes. And I do think it is that linguistic flexibility of like yeah. playing with the categories of like what is acceptable and what isn't and what boundaries can you push and what I, I mean I do think I think it's carnivalesque like I think it really captures yeah. that very and well. you just have to redefine like carnivalesque is supposed to be just very a rare thing but when like you said when you're a doctor and there's death every single day you need a carnival every single day yeah yeah Man. so that's that's my research thing and yet we still don't know about cast so yeah, no, that was a wonderful research thing. And I really appreciate We'll have to road trip for that one. This is, I just, I don't know if any of this is interesting, but I'm fascinated with it. And I couldn't edit and it's your that. podcast. So apologies. Sorry, it's our podcast though, which is why I feel bad. Um, but, <laughs> but I am, I will, when I tell you what the actual research thing is, I'll point it out. But this was all research <laughs> that love, was late. I love that yep. you already know we're not going to be able to tell. Yep. yep. <laughs> flashing arrows. Here. What are we researching? Is this just a list of things you read on Wikipedia? No, no, it is not. Um, so I was doing this research that's tangentially related for reasons, for real reasons. But um, so I'm going to start off by telling you, did you know that half of all geysers in the world, not in the country, in the world, are in Yellowstone National Park. I 100% did not know that. Maybe that's because you don't care to think about geysers a lot, or maybe because it's a mind-blowingly amazing Geysers are pretty fascinating, actually. Like, some of them are so hot that they'll just, like, immediately boil a person. And Okay. This is my next thought. This is where we're going. I'm glad you know that. I'm glad that wasn't my whole research. (laughs) Sorry. Yes, I just Um, know your entire research. It's not actually about geysers, so we're good. Geysers are fascinating. They're very important for understanding volcanoes. You can like study volcano activity more safely with geysers, but they are not safe, as you said. I learned. Um, we're going to start off with this quote from Lee H. Whitsley, who wrote the 1995 book Death in Yellowstone, Accidents and Foolhardiness in the First National Park. Um, the idea of being boiled to death in a hot spring is a truly terrifying one to any rational person. And so, yeah. Um, wait, wait, wait. The, that's the quote? The idea? Yeah. The idea, the idea of being boiled to death in a hot person. spring is truly terrifying. So very, so I did not know this, but people do, people die from bear attacks in the national park more than they die from the hot spring, but people do die in the hot springs in Yellowstone from falling in to the geysers into the hot springs. Um, last year, three different people died in the hot springs. Two young men fell in, and eventually park rangers announced that they stopped looking for them. They never found them um, due to the, quote, due to the extreme nature and futility of it all. And so the park spokeswoman said there's just there's no remains left to recover. Also last year in July, a 70-year-old California man died after he entered the Abyss Hot Springs pool. And um, evidence of his death didn't appear until a week later when a shoe and part of his foot was found floating in a different deep hot spring. He just melted away. 
So the danger, of course, is in the heat. I My imagination was captured by this. The pools can reach temperatures of up to 205 degrees, enough to cause third degree burns in seconds. Those who have survived a dip in Yellowstone Hot Spring have come out with skin peeling, their eyes white and blinded from the heat. So... I'm not, you know, this nanny state proponent who's like, oh, we should just put safety gates of all over. But like, is, is it obvious that you're not supposed to do this when you're there? Like, I would hope so. But like, like the 70 year old man, for all they think they thought, for what they understand, because he's dead now, can't ask him. They thought he thought he was just going to go take a dip in a hot spring like you would at a hot spring national park. So I'm sure there are signs, but I think also calling like their hot springs and people going to hot springs, like you said, is like a very dangerous mix up. But since they started keeping track of it, only 22 people have died in Yellowstone National Park from hot springs, which is like way less than grizzly bear attacks. So we're probably okay. Um, We're getting closer to my research. This also captured my imagination um hmm. i'm gonna read you this this i found this in a newspaper article i don't know if this is interesting but i can't stop thinking about it and i'm just gonna read the, the article because something about it to me was like so cinematic but it's so real it's very tragic so warning this is a sad story and people die um we'll tell some jokes story. to make you feel better <laughs> johnny russell mills jr died attempting to help save Philip L. Howell and others from suffocation, April 6, 1966. Howell, 27, and 10 Boy Scouts were exploring a large cave, unaware that it contained gasoline fumes as a result of a leak in underground pipes. He and three of the Scouts were atop a ledge at one end of a large pit when a lamp ignited the gasoline fumes, causing a violent explosion and a huge flash of flames. Seven of the scouts went to the opposite end of the pit and climbed up a steep slope extending to the cave's entrance, but Howell and the remaining scouts were overcome by noxious gases resulting from the explosion. They collapsed atop the ledge, which was 225 feet from the cave entrance and 40 feet high. A group of college students, including Mills, 19, were at another cave in the vicinity when they learned of the explosion. They responded to the scene and were informed that Hal and three scouts were unaccounted for. Mills, an experienced cave explorer who had been in the affected cave previously, and another of the students entered the cave, water-soaked clothing over their heads, following a youth who lived nearby and who was also familiar with the cave. All had flashlights, but dense water vapor limited their effectiveness, and the smell of gasoline was strong. The youth reached the base of the ledge and tried to, cl tried to climb it, but then told Mills and the other student that he felt weak and dizzy. They told him to leave and he started toward the cave entrance. Mills climbed onto the ledge and tried to rouse Howell, the scout leader, but then descended and told the other student that they would need help removing him and the other three Boy Scouts. So he started toward the entrance. He found the other youth nauseated and delirious trying to find the cave entrance. The one that had gone back. That had gone back wandering around but then he mills who this is essentially his obituary he also became nauseated 
the other student lost consciousness. Two more students entered the cave and took the other student to the foot of the slope from which he was pulled to safety. Mills was found to be delirious by one of the other students. Rescue squad members arrived, descended the slope, and removed the youth and Mills. Neither could be revived. Hope was abandoned for Howell and the Boy Scouts. Several hours later, when a breeze entered the cave and improved conditions, the scouts began to revive and called for help. Rescue efforts were begun again, and the scouts were removed from the cave. They recovered fully. Howell, unfortunately, was found fatally injured, having fallen from the ledge. So that story just, I've been doing research into geysers, then caves. Cave explosions are less common now than they were in the 60s, but they were very, very common. And this story of a whole Boy Scout troop going in, there's an explosion. All of the Boy Scouts made it out alive. But it was very interesting to me that the ones who they just thought were dead, once the air came back into the cave, recovered. It's fascinating and like a miraculous. Um, but still very sad that like the heroes that went in to save them died. I don't know why I told you that story. My research, if I have to, that was a cool, it's not cool, but it's just, it's like a piece interesting. of history it was interesting. that I did not know about. It's interesting. Yeah. It's about caves and Missouri. Our home state is Missouri. Did you know that Missouri, Missouri is like the show me state, but did you know it's also known as the cave state? I did not know that. Um, you can't hear me nodding my head, but I am nodding, nodding my your head. head. Ten Tennessee has the most caves in the country, so Missouri doesn't have the most caves, but we've claimed. When has that of ever stopped us from claiming something? Um, Tennessee has over twenty percent of all the country's caves, but Missouri is the cave state. So today, my research is about Missouri caves, most specifically show caves, which I didn't quite realize aren't just part of everyone's life and upbringing did you go to a lot of show caves when you were a kid it's like like the mark twain cave where you go yeah yeah. it's exactly that and that was my show cave glad that's your show cave the cave i went to is um so caves are divided into like wild caves and show caves and show caves in case you don't know are caves in which people have made them like a tourist site or an entertainment site and I'm going to talk about some, but mine, I, when I was little, I loved going to Mark Twain cave and you go in for a tour, they have lights, it's all lit up. You get they to get rock light. candy at the end. Always the rock candy. You can put your head through a hole and be like Tom Sawyer. And Mark Twain is obviously near Hannibal, Missouri, where Samuel Clemens grew up and it's very, he played in that cave as a youth. And a lot of the Tom Sawyer stories, especially are thought to be tied to that cave. And that's why it's kind of called Mark Twain Cave. But show caves um, are considered to be one of Missouri's first tourist attractions beginning in the 1800s. And I'm just going to tell you, this really is what I've been researching for the past three days. I'm going to tell you about some of Missouri's show caves because I have such fun memories of them. And I just think they're very cool. And they're disappearing because they're very hard to maintain. And... They're just kind of falling out of vogue. People are worried about the environmental implications of going into a cave. So and the bats, the the bat, the was it white nose? The yeah, feeling your research again. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I wasn't going to talk about that. So okay. I'm glad you brought it up. That a lot of bat colonies and communities are in danger. It's and- really important that if you 
have worn your shoes into a cave that you don't wear them into another cave because you could be um, spreading the white nose. It's a fungus, right? A fungus yeah. that's growing. And um, which my research thing was almost because there's all these articles out today because The Last of Us is about this is not a spoiler it's in the opening credits. The Last of Us is about how this zombie apocalypse happens because of global warming that allows fungus that normally cannot survive in human bodies because of the temperature to survive because they adapt to higher temperatures. And so there were all these articles that came out today and yesterday that were like the last of us, the real science behind it. And like, apparently not that they have adapted to be able to live in human bodies yet, but well, no, actually some of them were about how like just fungal infections are up because uh, fungi are adapting to higher temperatures. And so I think, I don't know if um, white nose is, if that is happening with, but like this white nose fungus that is killing the bats is a real problem. And so if people go spelunking in one cave and then like, don't change their shoes, even if it's been a long time and then walk in another one, they can spread it and kill the bats. Oh man. So yeah. So that's like, that's a big reason why it's not as fun to just scrapes into a cave eating rock candy anymore. Um, also insurance has gone like way up for owning a cave, just having it on your property and then let alone letting a lot of people in. Um, so, but there are still some, there's fantastic caverns, which I have never been to. You can drive through it. It's a drive-through cave, which I think is fascinating. You just drive right on through it. You don't even have to get out or walk. It's just a drive-through cave. Um, it was originally, not originally, but during the Cold War, it was also designated as a fallout shelter. Um, and a fun little piece of tourism was that every person, the back of your ticket said, like, in the case of a nuclear apocalypse, you can bring your ticket to the back to the cave and they'll let you in to the fallout shelter. <laughs> and like people were saying, like, if, if that actually happened, it couldn't, wouldn't happen. But it was a fun little tourist thing to be like, I got my, my nuclear got my ticket apocalypse. For the apocalypse. Um, there's bridal cave, which people to this day get married in. There's been like over 4,000 weddings in bridal cave. Um, not fun fact, horrific racist genocidal fact is it's called Bridal Cave because of a story that may or may not have happened of a Native American who was kidnapped and like held in that cave and forced to marry someone until they killed Aww. themselves. Here I thought it was just a nice like, oh, it's a nice place to get married. <sighs> but from that, now for like people do get married there and have fun from that story. And mm-hmm. isn't that America? So there's Crystal Caves, which is closed. But if you have $900,000 laying around, you could buy it and the house. There's a lot of interesting stories about Crystal Caves because, yeah, yeah, it's. There's Merrimack Cave, which was one of the first tourist ones in the late 1800s. um, It was really popular to have parties and dancing when it got too hot in the summer because caves are cool because they all they have different temperatures but they all maintain their temperature that's generally between like 60 and 50 degrees no matter what else is happening um and then in merrimack caverns basically it's here like i said i've been researching caves and i'm trying to keep it limited to missouri caves it was one of like the biggest show caves drawing the most people to missouri to see the cave But what was most interesting to me was the man who owned Merrimack Caves is widely considered to be the inventor of the bumper sticker. Huh. 
This is contested because he created bumper stickers before they were stickers. And there is someone else that made them stickers you could stick on your car. But the idea of putting something on your car to say something is pretty much acknowledged to be Lester B. Dill. So visitors toured the cave. While they toured the cave, he would have workers he called bumper sign boys tie the Merrimack Caverns bumper signs on their cars. And that gave him free advertising because they didn't know that it was on their cars and they drove around with it until they found it. Um, it was basically like the first like adware. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, invented albums. Yeah. It was so fun to learn like Lester B. Dill who invented the bumper sticker as a means of promoting a show cave in Missouri. But now, now I'm almost done. The piece de resistance is my favorite cave, your favorite show cave, Mark Twain Cave. We lived kind of near Hannibal and Hannibal, Missouri is all about Mark Twain. Um, And recently, like within the past few years, they found Samuel Clemens' childhood signature. He kept saying like, I signed part of the cave. I wrote on the wall and no one has ever found it. And they recently just found it. I know that. That's fun. Very fun. Um, So- The first thing we need to know about Mark Twain Cave, other than rock candy, buy gemstones, pan for gold, put your head into Tom Sawyer's head, um, is that the first owner of that cave who made it a show cave was Joseph Nash McDowell. We're learning so much about Missouri history. He bought the cave in 1847, and he was the owner during Mark Twain's childhood. So when Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, was running around playing in the cave, signing the cave, James Nash McDowell was the owner of the cave. Um, James Nash McDowell, who is he? He's one of the most influential and respected doctors west of the Mississippi in his lifetime. But he is primarily remembered for his grave digging practices, which were highly illegal and highly controversial. But he's like, I got to study human anatomy. We got to do this. He would force all of his students to like grave rob and um, dissect corpses. And they formed like this tight club of medical professionals that were bound by this taboo. And they would joke about it. Can I interject for just a second? Because I did not tell you this part of the article, but there's a whole section in the article about how if you trace the medical students, the time when these jokes really, really start is in gross anatomy because you have to dissect a human body and it is so taboo that it's so like it's so uncomfortable that they have to do something to break the discomfort of it and that is where so like even even like a student who was super respectful of people and was like you know I wouldn't nor- I wouldn't normally joke she's like you just kind of have to make it a casual atmosphere to get through it and like that's where they and and they said that like that's where the peak of the darkest jokes at like is in that period of time and then like as they get better you know like and they're also working these insane hours and all and so it's not until after they like get out of residency and become full-fledged doctors that they start to like mellow their jokes again so the the, (gasps) there's the peak of that is it well thank you mcdowell i mean he didn't pioneer it like all over but like in modern medicine in the u.s it was him and yeah I that's so interesting because I kept reading these things about how his students were taught 
talk about how close that they were and how special this was and like connecting this was because of the taboo and how they all like really supported him even though it was illegal and they couldn't really talk about it um yeah so that's him he's also known for his influence on mark twain who's running around in his cave and was likely the inspiration for twain's fictional character dr robinson in the adventures of tom sawyer um he founded missouri's first medical school missouri medical college um it was the first medical school founded west of the mississippi at all and after his death, it became the Washington University School of Medicine. So, yeah, he was like trying to make it a, a, to make it legal, to make it more common to be a doctor. You kind of need to know what a body does and what it looks like and cut it up. So while he was there founding the medical school, doing this at the time, illegal cutting up of bodies. And he was grave robbing, which is illegal. Um there were anatomy riots across America because other doctors were doing this too um, in the 1840s because this was a growing thing where we need to cut bodies up. And so basically all across America, people were outraged about allegations of body snatching and cutting up bodies and they targeted medical schools. They would go with like pitchforks and you know, flames and go to medical schools and say, stop cutting up bodies. How dare you learn how to save our lives? Exactly. <laughs> um, never happened again in the history of mankind. Hooray. Science is loved by all. So one of the largest demonstrations ever during these 1840 anatomy riots was in St. Louis after locals found discarded remains of several dissected cadavers in an open pit behind St. Louis University, my undergrad alma mater. So my graduate. Yeah. So, both of our alma maters. Um, so that really kicked it off when they found these desiccated corpses behind Slough. Five years later in 1849, a mob stormed Dr. McDowell's Missouri Medical College because the family of a girl who he had previously worked on suspected him of stealing her corpse and using it for dissection. And they were correct. He did do that. Um, he wanted to know what caused her death more. He wanted to learn about it. And he, however, um, he said he received a tip off of the raid from his dead mother, which will come back later that he, he got, he got um, advice from his dead mom and heard his dead mom talking to him. Um, and so it was just, yeah, it was, um, people were mad at him. September 11th of that year of the same year of 1849, Again, people got mad at him because a woman went missing near Missouri Medical College. Again, his dead mother tipped him off that they were coming for him. Wait, and like she was alive when she went missing? The woman? Yeah. Yes. So now they, they think that he's escalated to taking yes, from people. Right. The, the girl that he worked on died and they knew that. And then they were mad he cut up her body. Now they're saying he's murdering people for their bodies. So an angry mob gathered outside of the Missouri Medical School again, demanding to search for her, but his mom tipped him off and he was ready. And he had, quote, three cannons and 1,400 muskets that he had stocked up at the medical college. A person um, can't fire 1,400 muskets. What, what is even this plan? His students his students rallied 
Right? Right? They all his students had these old flintlock muskets and they gathered around him, him and like 30, it's it's contested between 30 and 75 students, fought off this angry mob with their muskets and their cannon. This is why research is great, because I was researching caves. Um <laughs> he owns a cave. So um fun fact. Two months later, the woman was found alive, living in Alton, Missouri, with, quote, a handsomer man. <laughs> she had just <laughs> run off with someone. And so the angry mob went and formally apologized to the good doctor for trying yep, to kill yep. them. Exactly. <laughs> We're not done. Is something they pointed out on the tour, but they really, like, sanitized this down. I remember hearing about it, but not in this way. So what is Miguel infamous for? It's not really for any of the things I've already talked about. He is most infamous for putting his recently deceased daughter, when she died, into a copper cylinder and put that in the back of the cave, into Mark Twain Cave. It wasn't called Mark Twain Cave then, but his cave that he owned. Um, And so she died. He put her in a copper cylinder. He put her in the cave in order to further his theory of human petrification. And so when residents of Hannibal learned about this, they begged him to remove her and bury her properly. They rioted. They came at him in an angry mob. But the story of why he put her in a copper cylinder is even more interesting. So he was like, you know, he is one of the founders of like American modern medicine, right? But he was very spiritual. This is the 1800s. Spiritualism and medicine and science are pretty closely tied a lot more often than I think you realize sometimes. And so he had um, basically he had this vision from his dead mother, which he thinks helped him evade arrest and attacks. But then his dead mother came to him again to tell him the theories of what happens when you die. And so he had this whole after death, which is interestingly, like doctors just doing what they need to do, I guess. And if not jokes, forming new religious beliefs. Um, he believed that traditional burial stifled the soul and that a different type of internment was really needed for human beings. And so um, if you could get this right, you could facilitate communication between the living and the dead. If you could just bury people or intern them correctly after they died, you could talk to them forever. And so that was his aim when he put his daughter in preserving alcohol in a copper tube in a cave. Um, but not only did locals have problems with that, they also would break into the cave and mess with her, with the, the dead daughter. So he did eventually, because of that, removed it and um had the body removed so other than that know. if you could we'll have communicated with the dead i know thanks everyone for ruining it because if anybody um, could have communicated with the dead it's the guy who got the message from his mom to right? uh get his muskets ready yeah got a whole medical school to rally behind him with cannons 
Um, the only other fun fact about Mark Twain Cave, which pales in comparison to everything I just told you, was that Jesse James hid out there for a long time. I did know that part. That part it, made it to me. I feel like did. I got um the the best part of this history stolen from me, though. I feel like- I know. I want to know all about the man who invented. Just I guess I guess the lesson here in my research is that if you're a human being who owns a cave, there is more to you than owning that cave. You have more you have responsibility going on. to history to, you know, and whether, whether it's you know it or not, you're going to, you're going to do something. Whether it's inventing the bumper sticker or creating a whole telepathic living dead system. Yeah. That's my research. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I really was happy with what I learned this week. All right. Okay. Well, let's recap. My weird thing was freeze-dried eggs as a response to the egg shortage. My weird thing was um, the very first chat GPT written speech on the floor of Congress or the House of Representatives, yeah. My pop culture thing was trying to figure out which curve on get books to study. And that was the only pop culture thing. There was not another. Any other things. Not my any. pop my <laughs> pop culture thing was the prevalence of uh um milf manner and get your group back and just why do they turn to like date your sign why do they want that i'll stop and the uh the hostless reality and hostless reality shows absolutely just reality shows breaking my brain now and i am someone who has a strong tolerance for reality shows right but this is it. This is doing it. This is this is the line. Okay, is, so the line was way, way a long time ago for me. But this is the one that broke Catherine. Um, my research thing was the concept of medical carnivalesque and why medical professionals use dark humor. And my research thing was ostensibly um, Missouri show caves. But I will say because I know there'll be a connection there, and Doctor McDowell who owned a cave and did this stuff with cutting up bodies. Okay. There's something about, so we talked about the taboo of cutting up the bodies into pieces. In fact, let me find the quote that keep, keeps coming to my mind as a possibility to tie these things together a bit. It's, it's just going to be taboo. Oh my gosh. It's going to be like the taboo of horror. I mean, what was mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's the taboo of like cutting up dead bodies. There's the taboo of laughing at death. Obviously, there's the incest taboo. Um, your it, pop culture. Ooh, Kervonigat taboo. I mean, Kervonigat definitely messed with the taboo, right? Like yeah. A lot of, yeah. Well, so, th- so this quote keeps coming to my mind. Gross anatomy is without a doubt an extreme situation in which students confront death starkly and must overcome fear, repulsion, horror, and ambivalence to do what is likely taboo the world over. Take apart a human being bit by bit. Okay. I feel like we could just say taboo down the line, but there's something to that quote, but something to what you said about how 
because they just live and work in such a different environment and such an intense environment they have to create this they have to just transmutate like language and meaning and there's a transmutation of that and i feel like um i feel like well we can fit Kravani into anything because his work does everything but i'm like is there a parallel to like what it is to be a human being alive today and to like consume pop culture or to be entertained by television that it just has to transmute like everything's already been done there, and there has there to almost be is no taboo anymore right yeah there has to be this insane transmutation into just disgust like to where i don't i don't i i think i'm getting somewhere but i don't think we have an hour for me to get there well, and I'm thinking about just uh, probably a simpler version, a simpler take than yours. But I think that something about just breaking something into its bits is maybe a connection here. Because yeah. like- But also so just like the weird scarcity mindset we have, the hoarding mentality post-COVID turns a beautiful fresh egg that already costs too much into a sad powder that costs even more. And then, then the, the chat GPT thing is about like, I, I think- wanting to break out these components of making it look like you're on top of something that, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm from our conversations, I'm not against chat GPT, but I think that we are pretending like we have a better handle on what it's going to do. than like you said, it's so weird that he's having a right of speech in order to not let it get out of control. Like they're yeah. using it even more so that it doesn't get out of control. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm just really skeptical of our, I'm really skeptical of our claims that we have dissected out what is, I guess, to use the the terminology we're using here, that dissecting concept. I'm really skeptical of the claims that we have dissected out the usefulness or that we can dissect out the usefulness from the problematic, right? Yeah. And then I had to dissect Kurt Vonnegut's body of work in order to create this syllabus that felt... I did feel like I was like desecrating something, right? Because I was like, oh, I don't want to lose any of these pieces, but I have to. The only good desecration is a human body. Well, you shouldn't desecrate human bodies. You shouldn't grave rob, but you should absolutely cut them up and that should be legal. We should find ways to do it. And the ways that doctors find humor in things, I think is absolutely necessary. But the turning eggs into powder is not necessary reading the speech on the floor of the house is not necessary and i think milf manor and get your groove back both dissected something out of a larger piece of pop culture but it was not necessary you could make it was stupid to make those shows i see those shows being made but it was not necessary to involve like date your son yeah so so maybe something like <laughs> When you're playing Operation, no, don't have, hit the edge. I have one. I'm just embarrassed okay. to say it out loud. Say it. Say it. When you chop up a body, be careful of what pieces you take. <laughs> a surgeon goes into surgery. I cannot operate on this boy. He's my son. How is it possible? She's on Milf Island. Um... <laughs> When you're, I love yours. <laughs> be careful which parts you take. Top of a body. Be careful, be careful which parts, which you, parts take. you take. 
I think that's, I love that. If I got that, and I've said this before, but if I got that on a fortune cookie, I would be thrilled. Because I'm like, I think I get that metaphor, but also cool and weird. And when you're chopping up a body, be careful what parts you take. I mean, I think it really does fit. Like, I think it fits. And it absolutely does. It fits your weird thing. It fits my weird thing. It fits both pop culture. Absolutely. You have to be careful which Kurt Vonnegut you're taking. Um, you gotta, when you're, I mean, the people in Milk Manor are literally just touching naked torsos, hoping it's not their own sons, but having Ew. to guess it's Ew. their own sons. Um, yeah, this works on every level, every single level. Um, yeah. Yeah. Done. Dusted. Okay, everyone. Remember, going into the next week, two weeks, when you're chopping up a body, be careful which part you take. Be careful. Be cautious. Pay attention. No, I'm really proud. I'm sorry. I'm just pat, pat, pat. Yeah, pat, yeah, pat you yeah. on the back. We cool. did that one pretty quickly too. It was so good. It worked. We didn't need to get chat GPT involved. We we need to uh tell you all to send us some grab bags. Yeah. Send us some grab bags. We want them. We do. Again, if only just so we get to hear the song. Yeah. Angreementpodcast at gmail.com. I feel like other podcasts, not that we're at the level of like podcasts like this, would be like, if you donate to our Patreon, we'll feature your grab bag. Meanwhile, I'm like, if you We're give us a grab bag, if you give us one, I'll pay you. Or if you <laughs> give us a grab bag, I'll have my spouse who did the grab bag song make you a custom song. <laughs> it's like, wait, that's not the order. The people making the content should not also bribe people to be fans and give them content. But and when you're chopping with a little reflection body, that might make us wonder about the quality of our podcast, but I refuse to do yeah. that because- I love this and it's yeah, my favorite Michelle, thing. when you're chopping up a body, be careful which part you take because we have to remember this podcast is not for what's going to happen them. next Thursday when it's when I have gone through the process of editing and uploading. This podcast is for right now. It is. Where I get it to is. look at my friend. It's purpose. I get to talk to my friend for two to four hours every other week because we're so type A. We can't just talk to each other if we're not producing something. <laughs> That's what it's for. That's what, and and um, we have succeeded. We found the formula. Yep. Yep. Well, on that note. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.